This is the Emergency Medical Minute, sponsored by Health One. Good morning. Well, thank you all for uh, attending this meeting, uh, helped by the uh, by ASAP's uh, Pain and Addiction Management section. Uh, we have a group of uh, very distinguished guests and experts in their field who are going to be talking with us about buprenorphine, about opioid use disorder, and about uh, using buprenorphine uh, in different situations, especially after overdose, which was a topic of significant discussion when posed to the group. Uh, my name is Don Stater, and I'm uh, an emergency physician in, in Denver, Colorado, and, uh, and also the um, chair-elect of the uh, pain management and addiction section. And I'll go ahead and have our panelists introduce themselves, uh, starting with Rachel. Thank you, Don. Uh, my name is Rachel Haruz. I'm an EM physician uh, who's also med talks and addiction boarded in Camden, New Jersey. Andrew? Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm an emergency physician out in Oakland, California. Uh, I'm also boarded in pain and addiction, and I run our bridge clinic as well and the uh, lead the California Bridge Program, which helps hospitals around California get started with youth programs. Eric. Uh, hi, everybody. So, <clears throat> sorry, Eric Ketchum, I'm the, uh, uh, one of the co-founders and the uh, uh, chair currently of the ASAP pain, and pain medicine, excuse me, pain management addiction medicine section. Um, uh, been uh, working, uh, doing addiction work for eight years or so altogether. Um, I run um, methadone clinic and also been working with buprenorphine for quite a while in the emergency department and other settings. So I work out in uh, New Mexico, uh, primarily with the Presbyterian uh, system and uh, basically work to um, do inpatient addiction medicine consults. So I spend half my time on a, be on a behavioral health service doing addiction medicine and then the other half of my time uh, as a pit doc, but working a lot to build our ED buprenorphine program. Okay, so we're gonna jump right in. Uh, so a situation that happens in emergency departments across the country uh, is there's a young man who, uh, let's say, injected was injecting heroin. He's a longtime user, uh, but but has a uh, you know has probably not used because of difficulties with COVID. Uh, after injecting for the first time in a week, uh, he's overdosed and uh, was and EMS was called, reversed the patient in the field, and brings him into the emergency department in pretty significant opiate withdrawal. So let me ask, uh, let me ask, starting with Rachel again, what would you do with this patient? Um, that's almost like a trick question. Um, we are very uh, bup heavy in our emergency department. I mean, we, and again, I'll go into this a little bit later, we actually do bup in, in the field as well. Um, but in the emergency department, this is kind of a no brainer. This patient would be coming through our triage, triage section. Um, he would probably be relegated to a chair in the bus stop. Uh, which is where a lot of these patients go. Um, and we would just treat that with straight up buprenorphine. We would probably give him 16 milligrams up front. Um, you know, we, we may ask him if he's on methadone or not. Um, and sometimes we would uh, be a little bit more careful with methadone, but if this is straight up heroin, this patient would get 16 milligrams sublingually um, right off the bat. Andrew, how about in your shop? Yeah, you know, it'd be this pretty much the same thing. Um, I'm not sure everyone in in my um er would, would start with 16 i probably would um you know I, I i don't think it's that big of a deal you know um but i think the um he would he would get eight milligrams um you know if i'm not there um if one of my other docs who's not really comfortable with this is there 
you know, they might kind of just sort of get, it might get lost in the flush in, in the shuffle a little bit. So that's really our issue. But our certainly our goal would basically be to try to get to Rachel's level where basically everyone automatically gets it. Um, methadone is we find is just really easy, you know, because they folks on methadone in my community, they know they're on methadone. It's not like a secret. And they're like, get that shit away from me. You know, I just want to sleep. Um, it's just not that easy to accidentally dose a methadone patient. It can, it's possible, but you really got to have zero communication with someone. And usually these people are talking. And so we would just be like, hey man, can I give you something that's gonna make you feel better? Do you want Suboxone? You know, it's gonna make you feel better. It'll, it'll come on quickly. It's really safe. We can continue on it later if you want it. Is that okay? Does that sound good? Yeah. And, and you give it and that's it. And Eric, how about in New Mexico? So um, <clears throat> I can't speak for the whole state of New Mexico, of course, and I wish I could say that uh, all of our hospitals in New Mexico were enlightened and moving forward. Um, but, um, you know, we're still trying to pull the rest of the hospitals forward. The, um, usually this patient also is going to get approached, going to be offered buprenorphine, and the vast majority of patients are, if they're definitely withdrawing, uh, are going to be happy to take that. Um, some, you know, still are afraid of buprenorphine from prior bad experiences of usually buprenorphine precipitated withdrawal. Um, so there are definitely some who are fearful. And, but with good scripting and education, you can walk most of those patients through it. Patients who've had it before know that this is the best time to get it when they're actively withdrawing. Um, I agree exactly with, with Andrew. I think this, um, this fear of methadone um, is a little unfounded because the patients who are on methadone, they're completely aware of this and, and they're not going to let you give them uh, buprenorphine. I mean, it's that, you know, this is not about the patient who accidentally took a dose of methadone that wasn't theirs that overdosed. I mean, you're really talking about the patient who's in methadone treatment. And in those patients, we want to get, they want to continue in their treatment. We want to get them back into their treatment. Um, the, um, we can talk about a different bizarre scenario, like let's say they took a whole lot of naltrexone and they're just horrific florid withdrawal, you know, is this a time maybe buprenorphine would be helpful, blah, blah, blah. But, but for your typical overdose from the street, which is usually heroin or fentanyl or oxycodone, some sort of combination of things, uh, I think all these patients benefit from buprenorphine and certainly more of our EDs are getting more comfortable doing that. And I also agree with Rachel that, um, well, to say, first of all, that our protocol is to give them eight milligrams with, you know, a note to repeat, you know, if they're not getting better, you know, quickly. Uh, if I'm working, you know, they're going to get more than eight, you know, very quickly because I do try to load them with buprenorphine in the emergency department. Um, so to make sure they're well loaded before they leave. So, so, you know, this for, I think, a lot of our audience members and really for the general emergency physician uh, is, is kind of really bizarre, right? Because... I've heard a lot of ER docs come and say, wait, so this person has used an opioid, has overdosed, they've been reversed with naloxone, they're in withdrawal, but that naloxone is going to be gone in an hour. If you give them a big dose of buprenorphine, won't they just be in withdrawal for longer? So, so can you kind of speak to why buprenorphine immediately after a reversal with naloxone would work? And, and, and maybe Rachel, especially you as a toxicologist and, and Andrew as a uh, kind of expert on buprenorphine can explain why patients aren't in the longer withdrawal if you do treat them with buprenorphine aggressively and upfront. 
All right, so I'm going to start just by saying that I don't know that we fully understand uh, why this works. When buprenorphine first uh, came around, what we did see is we saw a lot of people in precipitated withdrawal. Um, and generally the story was, hey, I started uh, you know, feeling like I need to use and I took one bup and now I'm in precipitated withdrawal. Um, and that absolutely still happens. Um, there's a couple things about buprenorphine that people should know. The first is that it has a very high affinity uh, for the opioid receptor, um, higher than heroin, um, higher than many of the synthetics maybe save uh, some of the fentanyl, an fentanyl um, analogs um, and high dose dilaudid. So it will get in there, it will bind. Some people still refer to buprenorphine as a agonist antagonist. I don't think that's really fair. It's a partial agonist and because of its binding affinity, it acts as a quote antagonist because it is bound to the receptor. It doesn't allow anything else to bind. Um, Buprenorphine has a pretty rapid onset of action. Um, you know, we usually say 30 minutes to an hour. Clinically, I've certainly seen it um, act within 10, 15, 20 minutes. Um, it also has a much longer, um, it, it acts much longer. So basically the half-life um, and the clinical effects can last for 24, sometimes up to 36 hours, depending on what the dose is. Why it exactly works is not really clear. One of the thoughts is that, especially if you give it in a really high dose, what it does is it occupies. So you have somebody who is using opioid. You then get naloxone. It displaces the opioid, right? That's what we want. We want the opioid effects to be displaced and the patient to be waking up. In the meantime, you, have, you give them buprenorphine. Buprenorphine has a higher binding affinity than naloxone. It then displaces the naloxone and it binds for a long time. Now it is a partial agonist. But if you give enough, it seems that if enough of the opioid receptors are in fact bound, right? And so with a 16 to 24 milligram uh, dose, you may in fact have activity at about 90 to 95% um, uh, binding. And when that happens, the cumulative effect of all that partial agonism may in fact be enough to prevent withdrawal, if that makes any sense. Um, and so that's kind of what we've gotten. And, and, you know, over, over the years, I've been doing this like the other guys. I've been doing this for years. We started our clinic in 2015. We wavered our docs in 2017. Um, and we've been prescribing for about, about four years now. Um, and we did start slowly. We, we would start with, you know, four and then eight. And what we realized is that you have this really short period of time in the ED. And if you give 16, or sometimes we'll go 16 and then another, another eight, right up to 24, um, we don't have people who have precipitated withdrawal. And I know Andrew feels strongly about this too. I'm going to let him talk a little bit about that too. Yeah. So, you know, about a year ago, I think I decided just to do the full, just, just deep dive, just go, just spend, you know, some time and go after every single written thing about buprenorphine precipitated withdrawal, um, chase down every reference, you know, most of the people who were originally developed buprenorphine are still alive. They're getting pretty old, but they're still out there and just, you know, went for it, put together everything I could find, emailed directly all of the folks I could get in contact with and sat on a deck and said, and the basic thing of the deck, just so people understand, was that when they were doing experiment, when they were doing controlled clinical experiments on exposure of buprenorphine to opioid maintained folks. There's actually no description of precipitated withdrawal 
in someone who's maintained on a short-acting opioid, usually morphine. So every single described case, we, and this is not to say precipitated withdrawal doesn't occur with short-acting opioids, but it's just to, re, just to sort of point out how over, how huge this concern got has um, never been described. And so I sent this out to everyone who is associated with NIDA and all these folks that am I missing any article out there? Is there any description of someone who in any one of these trials was maintained experimentally on morphine and then exposed to buprenorphine and precipitated withdrawal? And no one can find something I'm missing. So the, the point there is that people that all of the literature on, on precipitated withdrawal comes out very, very pragmatically out of, let's say you're a researcher and buprenorphine comes out and you need opioid dependent patients to participate in a research study. You're not hanging out with people who use heroin in the street. Who are you hanging out with? With people who are enrolled in methadone programs, right? It's not rocket science. So what do you do? You recruit people out of methadone trials onto buprenorphine. And we all know that the transition from methadone to buprenorphine is far more complicated and far more fraught, fraught with difficulties. So all of the induction and all of that literature comes out of methadone and really just doesn't apply, uh, honestly, to someone who's using a short-acting opioid. This whole thing of two milligrams and then two hours, two milligrams, e e this is for methadone. For, you know, Rachel just nailed it. You know, it's just like, if you're in withdrawal from heroin, just give them the dose that's therapeutic right off the bat, you know, which for most people is 16. Um, so that's out there. And I put that out there. I challenge you, go back in the literature and try to find a study where they've maintained people on opioid, they exposed them to buprenorphine, because they did this, you know, 180 milligrams of morphine a day. And then they'll give you eight milligrams IV or IM of buprenorphine. No one had withdrawal, right? It's just not as calm as we think. So that's the background. Um, and the way I think about it is that there's, there's the agonism, there's the actual displacement event, and there's the blockade. And I think of the displacement event is almost like a migraine. You know, it's just some people are sensitive when you go from full agonist to buprenorphine. Some people aren't. Like, you know, we know, you know, Rosado 2007 with Sharon Walsh, you can take 100 milligrams of of methadone a day, and there's a certain amount of people who can take 32 milligrams of buprenorphine without any withdrawal. There's other people who can take half a milligram of buprenorphine and go into withdrawal. So it's really varied. And that's that displacement effect. And then there's blockade. So if you have been given naloxone, you've already gone through the displacement event. You've had the nuclear event. Everything's been kicked off. If you're gonna feel terrible, you feel terrible. Buprenorphine, you know, Mark Greenwald, our, you know, sort of pharmacokineticist um, <clears throat> at Wayne State, what NIDA really relies on as a as sort of the expert, would say that naloxone is a stronger affinity. I mean, sorry, that buprenorphine has a stronger affinity than naloxone even. So basically at that, that level, you're having just, you know, scorched earth naloxone being replaced by an agonist signal. It's a partial agonist signal, but it's an agonist signal that we all know is, is quite strong because we can maintain people on large amounts of heroin with buprenorphine. So that's gonna make you feel better, right? So you're going from bad to worse. So you feel that, you experience that as better. So I've actually never understood the pharmacologic argument that this would be, that this would cause distress. Um, I've never understood that. And then anecdotally, giving these talks, I, I 
asks, you know, if you've seen this go bad, tell me, right? And I just haven't seen those cases either in front of me or reported to me through the whole network of folks. So I don't see how, I just don't understand the concern. Because if you've displaced all the agonist and you replace it with a full agonist, you feel better. In, and then it's, it's on the receptor and there you go. It, it just doesn't seem that complicated. Well, uh, you know, let me ask, uh, I'm gonna stay with Andrew and then I'm gonna ask a question to Eric real quick. So Andrew, you know, you've been doing this deep dive into buprenorphine and you sent me this very impressive slide deck, which- Yeah, uh, okay, great. <laughs> and, and, uh, and let me ask you, for the emergency physician out there um, yeah. who does not use buprenorphine a lot, what other things would you tell them about buprenorphine that you think are, are, are need to know, uh, need to know facts about the, the drug? Well, is the, I guess the, the really the big deal is that this ceiling effect doesn't hold for people who are critically ill. So that's, that's what gives me pause. So if you have, you know, some people might use a certain amount of agonist and the reason they overdose is because they're septic. Um, or they're having an MI, or they're having a PE, or, or thyroid toxicosis, or DKA. I mean, we found all these crazy cases where people present an opioid withdrawal. We've never had one with overdose. But if you gave that person potentially a big slug of buprenorphine when they're already um, at critically ill, there I wouldn't feel confident in the, in the ceiling effect. So I really think that's the big thing is you've got to be sure you're not dealing with a, a serious underlying, you know, and when I see serious, I mean really serious, not like, oh, they have a diagnosis of COPD. I mean, they're septic, you know, they're, they're critically ill. Um, so that ceiling effect is not like just like etched in stone um, is the biggest thing, honestly. Um, just for clarification of, for the audience, ceiling effect means that ceiling of sedation and the ceiling of respiratory depression that's often talked about with buprenorphine as a partial agonist. So that's, so when Andrew says ceiling effect, I think that's, that's exactly what you're talking about, correct? Yeah, we'll back it up. Yeah, so that's, it's really remarkable. Um, and the ceiling effect happens quickly. You know, it's like two, four milligrams um, for all of these factors around respiratory depression. And again, it's remember that it's a ceiling, not a lack of effect. So you do get respiratory depression. It just, tops out, you know, two, four, eight milligrams in there. And that has very little variation as you keep going all the way out, basically as high as you can go. Um, most studies stop at 32, but that's sort of an arbitrary number. There's no reason to think that after 32, it does anything different. Um, uh, drug effects, sedation, all that. That concern for over sedation from buprenorphine, you know, I've just finished a review of 650 cases, probably 250 of them that got 24 to 32 milligrams. It's just not, we're not seeing it. It's just, that's just not the issue. Um, we are seeing, you know, a very low rate of precipitated withdrawal. I mean, tiny, you know, sub percentile rate. And it, it occurs at the lower dose. Like it's, it's not like a threshold thing. It's just, it's going to happen. It's going to happen at two, four, or eight milligrams. Um, so the, the ceiling effect, the, um, and then once it's on the blockade, right? It's so that if you're worried about someone bolting and, and repeat overdosing, as we've all of us have seen people get discharged and then overdose on the way home, basically, um, there's nothing safer than that, as Eric mentioned, you know, to have them loaded um, is the most protective thing you can do for someone. Does, Don, did I, did I cover some of those one-on-one things? 
Yeah, you did, you, brother. You knocked it out of the park. Okay, Eric, I'm going to transition to you. Okay. Can I touch on something that uh, Andrew just said? Just um, of course, yeah. yeah. So you know, I um I do a lot of education. In fact, I got another webinar today about um, pain management with patients with opioid use disorder and. And one of the things I talk about all the time is, you know, when patients come in and they're sick in the ED, whether they got a big abscess, they're gonna to go to the OR, a variety of illnesses, if you can really tease out carefully that they're also an opioid withdrawal, and this just is about getting a good history. When was your last dose of your, of your last opioid? How long ago did you use heroin? And then looking for symptoms other than what's jumping in front of you, because a really sick person who's vomiting, you know, maybe vomiting because they're septic and they're febrile, but sort of looking for all those other symptoms of restlessness, anxiety, the rhinorrhea, that just the body aches, all the hyperalgesia. And, and if you can sort that out and you can clearly establish they're in withdrawal, I think it's a critical moment, in fact, to start that buprenorphine immediately because it's going to profoundly alter their entire hospital course. If you can jump on that, that moment, get them loaded with buprenorphine, a couple things happen. First of all, um, we've talked you know, previously about what a powerful analgesic buprenorphine is. So you're really addressing their withdrawal. You're giving them far more MMEs worth of analgesia than you're going to give them by giving them IV um, morphine or Dilaudid. And it takes so much easier once you get their withdrawal under control to actually, they're going to be much more cooperative. You haven't lowered their blood pressure. Buprenorphine does not release histamine. So one of the things that's a big problem with morphine or hydromorphone is that histamine release resulting in hypotension, um, less sedating. And, and you know, while we talk about uh, that ceiling maybe a little bit less in somebody who's critically ill, but I think that if you compare that to if, if you threw a whole lot of other opioids at them, you're still going to have, you know, a critically ill patient who's definitely now going to be potentially going to be sedated and, and at risk of, you know, an airway problem. So if they're critically ill, you still have to treat them like a critically ill patient. You got to watch them carefully, monitor them carefully, like you're doing your, all your other things. But what my experience has been, and I've, you know, I've been consulted to convert people in the ICU who are critically ill to buprenorphine. It's the same, same concept. Got to watch them carefully. But I still think it's safer than other opioids. And, and once you've loaded them with buprenorphine, you can still use other opioids synergistically. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a whole bucket of stuff that we should look at in a lot of other areas to improve our care. So sorry, I just wanted to add that on to Andrew's yeah. So So let me ask you this. We, we've mentioned precipitated withdrawal as this great white shark, you know, or this thing to be fear, fearful of now, uh, you know, six or seven times in this, in this last minute. So if you do have someone who has precipitated withdrawal, um, what's your cocktail, Eric? How do, you, how do you approach that patient? You gave a dose of bup. So yeah, what, 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 what do you do can next? I, can so, I jump in? Because I, I have a real case from yesterday. It was a good one. Can I just, <laughs> can I just throw this to you, Eric? Yeah. Go for it. So this is classic, right? So this is a, it's this, he's this big guy. He's like this 300-pound guy, tons of tats. And the, he, he, he's a dealer. And two of his patients um, had come into a bridge program in California um, and gotten started on buprenorphine and doing great. And so they actually recruited their dealer. Um, so, and he decided he wanted to come in. But as we all, you know, as I'm sure Rachel and Eric and all of us kind of see, like, if you are in the business, you can have unfettered access. So you can drive yourself to some crazy daily habits, right? So he's using three, four, five grams of fentanyl a day. Um, he comes into the ER. He doesn't tell anyone that he's actually used just an hour or two before he got, get, gets there. Um, he gets eight milligrams um, of, of buprenorphine. And then he gets, feels better, actually. 
goes, he leaves, gets discharged. He comes back an hour later in Florida withdrawal. What would you do, Eric? So uh, my go-to medication, and once again, if you can walk the patient through it, my go-to medication is actually still buprenorphine. And if I've maxed out my buprenorphine, then I start thinking about having to do some uh, additional receptor management, you know, with fentanyl or, or hydromorphone if I really have to. And, and the reason we're bringing up hydromorphone, it's because it's the, the opioid, it's a full agonist, but it is the opioid that has the highest mu um, receptor affinity of, of all the opioid agonists, right? So, um, but the challenge, and this I think is really important for the audience to be aware of where, where this gets tricky is is educating the patient in advance. If you, if you and set the, um, do some anticipatory guidance because I have a lot of patients who are just so afraid of buprenorphine that they won't allow themselves to get into very much withdrawal at all to take that first dose. And what we're always doing when we're educating our patients when we're doing sort of that home induction or even if we're doing it in the hospital like I do a lot of inpatient work or in the ED, they're not really in withdrawal yet, but you know if you don't get them started when they leave, when in the ED, or in the hospital, when they leave, they'll never let themselves go into withdrawal enough to start the buprenorphine. So in these cases, you know, I'm often having patients who are not in withdrawal hardly at all, and I'm transitioning to buprenorphine. And the way I do that is with a massive dose of bup. I mean, I do it with a single big dose of 24 to 32 milligrams um, for most patients, but um, so that's a little off topic. So I'm not trying to, don't people jump out and do that right away, but, but it speaks to the point of you got to educate the patient because patients become very fearful of buprenorphine and you have to let them know what you're doing up front. And, and the other thing I've found is that in these cases where people are anxious about it is you have to do the observed um, administration. So basically a nurse has to stay with the patient and watch them take each tablet. And I use, you know, tablet form in the ED. And when I'm doing this, I'm also um, um, do it serially. So I don't have somebody try to hold three tablets under their tongue at once. It's really hard to do. And the patient can't keep track of it. So basically I do each tablet every five minutes until I get all three or four tablets, whatever I'm shooting for um, into the patient. Or even if I'm just doing two, I just do them, boom, five minutes to the next one. Um, but that's the anxiety because you'll have some patients who stop halfway through or they'll take the first one. And then their brother who's sitting next to them is saying, dude, you're screwed now, man, your host. Oh man, don't take any more of that. And then everything kind of goes downhill. Um, but um, so, or their brothers injecting heroin into their IV line at the same time. That, you know, certainly had that, that challenge as well, so. Um, can I just add one quick thing? Yeah, um, We, so I just wanna tell everyone, you know, you will sometimes have the patient who literally will say to you, I, I just can't go through withdrawal. I, I, I can't do it. Um, we did publish a paper. I'm not advocating that everybody do this, but we did publish a case report in Annals, um, I wanna say last year, where we had exactly that in the middle of the night, a guy's like, I don't know what to do. I, I just can't do it. And he, we offered a little naloxone to him, just a little bit, 0.4, um, to put him into withdrawal, to then give him the bup. And he agreed and it went very smoothly. Um, and he followed up in clinic um, and was doing great. So I'm not saying everybody should be doing this. I'm simply saying it is an option. And we were able to do that successfully to, a, to, to an individual that multiple times have tried and was simply unable to do it on their own. There's something very um, scary to some patients about going through withdrawal. It feels ter absolutely terrible. And to know that you can be in an ER, you can be in a bed, you can get so you can get all these medications and you have somebody there holding your hand is incredibly comforting. No, and, and, and so I just want to summarize here because it's an important concept. 
is you know what Eric touched upon and, and what I think Andrew and Rachel are also saying is your first line for precipitated withdrawal, if you haven't hit your ceiling of bup, which is around 32 milligrams, you just give them more bup. And then if they're still in withdrawal, you would actually default back to something like Dilaudid or a high affinity opioid to overpower and get them out of withdrawal. Is that is that kind of the practice that you three experts are, are performing when you do have that rare case of precipitated withdrawal? I'm not I'm not sure. Um, it, with the, you know, I tinkered a lot, you know, with with the additional of a full agonist on top of bup. You know, and if you're if you're in really high doses of bup, you 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 got to have such sort of you know confidence because you need to be able to use massive doses of dilaudid you know like 60 milligram pushes that kind of thing which is just not practical you know like you know you're just not going to see it so i was really enthusiastic about kind of a pain medicine approach where you have a base of buprenorphine you add on with high high affinity agonist on top of it but i just found practically i couldn't get buy-in to really give the doses necessary and it just dragged it out um, and that really buprenorphine is the way to give a massive agonist signal safely. It's, if I could add just, on that, Andrew, I think all the cases in retrospect where it seems like things aren't going well, we keep giving the patient more buprenorphine. What I found in almost all those situations, it's because the administration wasn't witnessed. So for example, this just happened on the inpatient unit for me a month ago. I had a patient who I knew was going to need a lot of buprenorphine. She was entering into a phase of severe opioid withdrawal, severe alcohol withdrawal as well. She was also confused. And so the nurse called me after, you know, she'd given her three doses, thought she'd given her three doses of buprenorphine over the course of like an hour and a half. So this doesn't even affect the patient at all. So I'm going there, I'm talking to the patient. I said, well, just bring another dose. And so she'd give the patient a dose. She'd walk out of the room and the patient reaches for a glass of water and she's going to swallow it down. So, so a whole lot of these cases where you think the drug isn't working, it's so often because the patient actually isn't keeping it under their tongue. They're not really understanding what's going on. And so I'm not sure if we really have good data yeah. on situations where that 24 or 32 milligrams isn't working, um, where it's actually been kept under the tongue and, and actually absorbed fully. So I think those cases are actually few and far between. I think that's the the, the other is what's confounding a lot of that data has been my experience. So Eric, that's a great point. And, and, and for all of us, I think returning to basics is, you know, they have to have it dissolve under the tongue is, is first and foremost. Um, so here's another question to pose to, to the panelists is, you know, uh, a lot of our audience probably knows the morphine equivalents of buprenorphine and, and the, you know, quote unquote morphine equivalent of sublingual bup is, is, a, is a 10 to one, right? So if you're talking about loading people with 24 or 32 milligrams of buprenorphine, uh, you know, supposedly that's 240 to 320 milliequivalents of morphine, which is huge. Um, now to clinicians who are concerned about possibly loading that much, what would you guys say? Um, Rachel, Rachel and Andrew and Eric, do you feel like that's truly a equivalent, morphine equivalent when it comes to analgesia? Uh, or do you feel like it's a little different because of buprenorphine's properties? I, I don't think any pharmacologist really uh, well, really thinks that there's any credible equivalency. It's it's just it's just uh, apples and oranges. It's a totally different drug. Uh, does anyone else? Rachel. Yeah, I agree, and I I don't look at, at it that way simply because of the there's just such different properties. Um, when I look at high numbers of opioids and what I'm worried about, I'm worried about respiratory depression. I'm worried about. Um, 
um, CNS depression. I, I just don't worry about that with buprenorphine unless you have alcohol or benzos on board. And even then, you know, again, it's so much safer than a full agonist. So I, I don't really look at it as equivalent at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, just gonna, I'm just gonna retreat back, you know, is if the patient's healthy, you know I mean? If, if you've got an ill patient, if you have an intoxicated patient you can't talk to, um, you know, they're, they're slurring their words and falling asleep, you know, you know, don't give that person a big dose of buprenorphine. It, it doesn't make any sense, you know, but that's just not who we typically see. And you are ER docs, you are good. I really have not met um, an ER doc who can't tell someone is, you know, is already completely loaded on a benzo or is completely hammered. Like, it's not like this, like, you know, right? It, it, so <laughs> you just, someone who's like already about to swallow their own tongue, don't give them a giant amount of buprenorphine. Someone who's dying of sepsis, don't give them a giant amount of buprenorphine. It, that's pretty simple. But if it's anyone on this call who happens to have a use disorder and um, comes in withdrawal, we're going to do great. It's just, it's just not, you know, it just doesn't pan out. Um, you know, and I, and I, you know, I, I'm, just through, like I said, reviewing in excruciating detail every single buprenorphine administration at Highland um, in 2018. So it was like 650 cases, um, you know, well over 200 that got 24 to 32 milligrams, and then everyone else got everything in between, you know, and there were just, there were no bad outcomes. You know, there were no bad outcomes. So and also add to that, just a, a comment. This is also comes to good clinical common sense, right? In addition to the patient who's clearly inebriated, you know, with alcohol or benzos or something else, not the person you give high dose buprenorphine to, but, um, you know, the, um, uh, the, the folks who have other significant comorbidities, right? So your patient who's on oxygen for their COPD, I mean, yeah. this is patient, okay. I'm more gingerly going up right. with their buprenorphine, but for so many of our younger, otherwise generally healthy patients, yeah. um, we may have deep diabetes, we may have hypertension, but if they're really, their primary, primary medical problems are their substance use disorders, you know, generally these patients tolerate uh, buprenorphine and they tolerate high dose buprenorphine well. But I think also this is, comes to the key point is we're really talking about seizing the moment to make sure that we get through that patient, that patient through the transition because the transition is what they fear. This is how we, we really get lots of buprenorphine on board. We really get a, that protective dose and really helping get them to their next stage of care, helping them last on their buprenorphine until they can fill that prescription um, and getting through all the potential, you know, precipitated withdrawal symptoms. I've had the same experience that where I tend to, this drags out longer with more precipitated withdrawal is, is trying to keep giving that little bitty dose and gradually working them up, which is really hard in the emergency department, first of all. And it's even sometimes really even hard on the inpatient unit, you know, to give them that much attention. And, and I load them with the high dose on the inpatient unit all the time too. So, so we've talked dosage a little bit, and this is actually a question that comes up a lot. Um, and, and that sometimes different emergency physicians get pushback on uh, from psychiatry and other things who have, are used to much more conservative dosing regimens. Right. So what is the correct, in your estimate, estimation, what is the correct initial dose to give in the emergency department? And what's the correct dosage to try to send people home on? I'd like to make that just crystal clear for everyone. Can I just make a caveat just to set the, and then I'll let people talk, is the, um, you know, we're, we're doctors and we love to obsess over details and it's really interesting and fascinating. Um, but I have to say, you know, the dosing issue, I will, I will 
dive into these conversations, you know, till the end. But honestly, in practice, I've seen that if you have an authentic, caring clinician who's really trying to do the right thing by someone and trying to help them and has a good relationship with them, you can do an amazing job with low doses, with middle doses, with high doses. You know, it, it's, it's not the issue to like fall on your sword about, right? You know, so if, if you really care about helping people with use disorders, build a team, build a collaborative program and start wherever people are comfortable. Don't be like, no way. If you're not going to let me do 16 milligrams off the bat with someone after naloxone, this conversation's over. That, that's not, that's, that's not the way to do it. You know, it's just like, Hey, let's look, we're all learning together and, and you grow. So I just really want to make that clear that I don't want anyone burning bridges. I don't want anyone just charging off. This is about collaboration and teamwork because this is, any one event in someone who has use disorder is one event. This is a long game. This is a chronic recurrent illness. So don't put too much emphasis like, okay, this is my one shot. And if I don't get the dosing exactly right, then this is all blown. Cause that's just not true. So, so with so, that, I would turn over well, the other. Andrew, just to, just to put you on the spot uh, and, and, uh, and one, amen to a, uh, a call to uh, collaboration and to not burning bridges with your, uh, with your consultants. But for you, who's built a program, what is the correct starting dose that you think is right after your review of the literature? Yeah, so, so like last night was kind of funny. Um, there's a guy who came with overdose like three shifts ago or something, he's still bordered. And, and I was like, so what's his use disorder? I'm like, we don't know. I thought, oh my God. Okay, so they treated his broken leg, but forgot about this. So I go to, I go to talk to him. And the first thing I lead with, I say is, hey, do you want Suboxone? Do you know what, you know what norphine? I don't ask him about his use, I don't ask him anything. I lead with the value added step. What's gonna make you feel better? And, and the guy says, yeah. And my next question is not like, oh, you know, did you start because your father was mean to you? You know, I, did, I just said, okay, how much, right? And he says 16 milligrams, this is great. Well, it turned out that I actually went to the wrong patient. <laughs> Right, and it was, <laughs> and it was just this other guy who had been coming in for some total issue, and I just happened to offer him buprenorphine. He's like, "Yeah," and so then I asked him how much he wanted. It was sixteen. So for that gentleman, what was the correct starting dose? Sixteen milligrams. So I really believe in shared decision making. Um, so the um, I really believe that most people that we see who use heroin or fentanyl are very able to categorize themselves in terms of their use, how heavy it is. So if they're a light user, a light user would be like four Norco 10s a day, or I'm just snorting enough heroin to get by, you know, cause I'm really trying to get quick, um, cut down. Or they're kind of middle of the road where like, yeah, I, you know, I'm using a half a gram, a gram, something like that a day. Or yeah, like the case we presented, he's a dealer, he's heavy. So, and I just say like, look, you know, if, if, you're, if you're heavy, you're going to want more to begin with. If you're light, you're going to want less. If you've experienced with it and you already know your dose, we're done. So that's my process. So it really varies anywhere from four um, all the way up to whatever, to 32. Like, I mean, if someone knows their dose, I don't mess around. Just give them whatever they, they, they tell me that they need. Um, if you're going to choose one number, I think eight is an easy number to start with. If you're going to choose one number, 16 milligrams after the discharge is an easy number to start with. So I would just say that that's our way our protocol is established as well for the ED. But a lot of times you set up a protocol because you want to make sure 
that all the rest of your docs who aren't as steeped in this, who aren't as interested in this, you make it the easy button, right? This is a protocol. Our first dose is eight milligrams. You can certainly lower that dose um, for the patients who, who've talked about it and they've been trying to wean themselves off buprenorphine, they're themselves getting too much withdrawal, they just want enough to kind of keep going. There's a variety of circumstances where sometimes you want to do a little bit less. Uh, the patient who's, on, who's, who's already on chronic opioids, but they're also on oxygen for their COPD. Yeah. Right. right, but, but, um, but that's why you really set the default at eight. Um, you make clear that there's an order to give more that they can easily click on. You keep educating your docs about the advantages of loading a lot of your patients. But, um, but once again, this is all about the transition. Um, we also set up our default order as, as uh, 16 milligrams a day, and that's really to kind of get them to their next clinic. Uh, but in my clinic, for example, or if I'm discharging somebody from the hospital who I've started on buprenorphine, it's, there's a whole broad range. And, and in my clinic, I have some people who are on two milligrams a day or even less. I have patients who are on 24 or even more milligrams a day because that's what they need. And really, you know, ultimately it's all about what does it take for this patient to function well? This is on a chronic dosing, right? Where they're not um, withdrawing, therefore not craving, not using, and also functioning well, sleeping through the night and able to go back and hold a job, you know, and, and take care of their family obligations. I and mean, that's sort of the dose I'm looking for long-term, but, the, um, uh, but there's a broad range from the clinic. The ED I think is really should be focused on transition. Yeah. How do we safely and effectively do that? Yep. Rachel? I just want to add one more thing. Um, just over the last, I guess, four years of clinic, one of the things that we've learned is that it depends, number one, where you are in the country, right? So we are very, very heavy in a, in a very high fentanyl heroin area. So we are almost always going to go high. Our, our, you know, most of the patients that show up are, in fact, using heroin and fentanyl. That being said, my patients that are um, more MD Anderson patients, cancer patients that are coming off of oral opioids and are struggling to get off, those patients end up on much smaller doses. Yeah. Um, I think it depends. I, when I taught a course in Indianapolis, I was surprised to see how many people in the audience were like, oh, no, our patients don't come in on heroin. That's all oxycodone and oxycontin. Yeah. That's a different population, and very often they need much lower doses. They're older. Yeah. They may be on other medication. They may have other um, or bit comorbidities, and they need to be on lower doses. So I think it also just depends where you are in the country and what your population is. So, so, so just to summarize then the, the approach that, that most people are recommending, there's a call to really make a decision with the patient to find out how heavy their use is, to take a good substance use history. And then two, the reasonable starting dose, it sounds like from, from the audience, is eight is an easy one for everyone, but oftentimes, um, oftentimes you'll, you'll adjust that a little bit to, to the patient. Um, let's talk about the, the concept of large dosing prior to discharge, because um, I hear a lot, of, a lot of people, and I know this is the practice of some on the call, that you basically try to get them out the door with loaded with either 24 to 32 milligrams to bridge them to their appointment. And why is that? Why do you try to load them up prior to, to, to having them leave the, uh, leave the emergency department? If I could address that first, and then I'll open it up. Um, while in some centers, you know, we've done a fair amount of research, um, the center is all geared, right? They know they can get that patient to the clinic the next day. Um, and maybe it's less important to make sure your patient is leaving the ED with a lot of buprenorphine. Um, but uh, where that next clinic appointment can be difficult to arrange, or that's, you know, still using your navigator and a few phone calls, and the patient doesn't really have a phone, transportation challenges, 
don't have an ID. There's a whole lot of barriers that come up to getting that patient in their next clinic appointment. What I found is loading them is, is a good way to extend how long their cravings and withdrawal is going to be suppressed. So that's a key factor. So gives them time to be able to figure out how to fill, fill that prescription. The other key factor comes back to the X waiver and the three-day rule and such, because remember, unless your colleagues have an X waiver, they can't even discharge the patient with a three-day take-home pack, right? They can't write a prescription at all. And so for centers that only have a limited number of their docs who are X waivered, you know, this is your opportunity really is by loading the patient, at least gives them a better likelihood of, of getting to someplace else in a couple days um, or the time for one of your colleagues to then the next day write them a script or it helps, I guess, navigate some of those huge gaps created by the X waiver issue too. Andrew, Rachel, anything to add to that kind of concept where if you can't write a script, you try to load them more for the doctors without an X waiver to kind of quell withdrawal symptoms? Is that kind of your, your experience as well and why, why you might recommend to people to, to load higher? I mean, I, in, at our shop, we, everyone's X waivered, so they write prescriptions, but, and I still try to load them in the ED. And the reason I do that, one, we know patients leave the ED and they use right? So by blocking them, we're just kind of protecting them um, from these situations. The other thing is that one of the things that patients will tell you is that they wake up and they have to have something available because that sleeping and then waking up, they wake up and withdraw. If you load them, especially if it's overnight, they're not going to wake up and withdraw. And so they're less likely to use the next morning. So one, they're going to be more, they're going to feel better, have, you know, more positive um, outlook on the buprenorphine. Oh, this works. I feel good this morning. I don't, I don't feel sick. Um, and by the way, most patients, after we start them and I see them in clinic, they, what they will tell me is they'll, they won't say, oh, I feel great. They'll say, I feel normal. I feel like I did my laundry. I was able to cook for my kids. Um, and it's amazing when you see them in clinic, they are cleaned up and they, they look like different people. So I do that just to make them feel better and also um, to not let them wake up and withdraw. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, in pain medicine, the, the whole sort of foundation for opioid treatment is underlying tolerance and titration to effect. Yet somehow when it becomes addiction, it was like all of that became this top-down dictation of, of dose levels, which I think is a gross misunderstanding of receptor pharmacology. It, it, it's, you know, it's just not true. Like it's not that the when you look at those, you know, Mark Greenwald's receptor occupations, you know, studies where he's looking at like 12 people, you know, in radioisotope dyeing them. And that, you know, don't think that like somehow that means that that all of opioid pharmacology is out the window. You know, I mean, there is like differential effects based on your underlying tolerance. If you have a very high tolerance, you will need more buprenorphine. If you have a very low tolerance, you won't need as much. So you just got to follow the patient. And as Rachel's really brought out, you know, heroin in 1997 is really different than fentanyl. You know, it's just a different ballgame. And so, you know, I think a real illustrative thing has been sublocate, you know, which is this 300 milligram injectable drug that's put into the body, right? So you know the dose and it's a big dose, right? It's a heavy heavy amount of buprenorphine. It's that like 16, 24 zone. And there are plenty of people who can get completely loaded on fentanyl on top of their sublocate, 
right? And they can withdraw on sublocade when they come off their, their fentanyl additions. Those folks need higher doses. It, it, it's, just, it's just what's happening. So the, I'm not, again, I'm just never quite understood the squeamishness around just listening to your patient. It's a shared decision-making process. Don't, if someone doesn't want a bunch of buprenorphine, don't give it to them. But if they're still feeling crummy and they want to feel better, offer it to them. You know, because you'll see like some people are really afraid of feeling controlled by the medical system, feeling over sedated, feeling drugged. It's like the last thing they want. And other people are like, oh my God, I have the single largest fentanyl habit in the history of humanity. There's no way you could make me feel better. And so that, you know, one person you're going to give a lot to, another person you're not. Um, and the beauty is buprenorphine is so safe. You've got this enormous profile, you know, safety profile to work with. I got a question from the audience, which I'll, I'll just pose here because it should be a quick answer. Is are you seeing more precipitated withdrawal because of the fentanyl epidemic when you're giving buprenorphine? Mm, good question. What do, you, what do you guys think? Um, my experience, I'm not sure how much of it's because of the fentanyl epidemic, like the fentanyl itself, but I think that so often heroin is contaminated with fentanyl. Um, heroin gets contaminated with other crap too. Um, and so I, I think we're seeing a whole lot of sort of mixed potpourri, so to speak, of stuff that's in people's heroin that, yeah. that um, where the traditional teaching is, you know, you give them this much, they said, there we got a cows, looks like they're in withdrawal, and we give them this amount of buprenorphine and everything should go just fine. And sometimes it, it doesn't seem to go well. And I think that where we, um, what I often see is the mistake is, oh, we made them some buprenorphine, now we're backing off and we're changing directions and we're doing something else. And now I'm back to throwing all this phenergan and clonidine and, and benzos at the patient. And now I got a patient who's withdrawing, who's also now confused. And, and so, um, I think it's still kind of recognizing, okay, it's not going well, but what is our, our default, you know, which is early rather than later, more buprenorphine. But once again, it's, you got to educate the patient and also thinks it's not going well because we assumed that that first dose was properly administered, right? What's really happening is the patient's withdrawal is just developing because they swallowed it, you know, it wasn't, or I can't tell many times I've had a patient, you give them buprenorphine, it's sitting in their pocket. They take it right out of their mouth, they got scared, and then they're not telling you the nurse and they're telling anybody that it's actually sitting in their pocket. They only took a tiny dose of it, just enough to kind of get that withdrawal yeah. going. A lot of things, which is why I'm a big fan of anybody who you have fear or concern about that they're not, they haven't gone this way before, they're not ready for it. Got to have it fully supervised, that administration. Rachel, how about, yeah. how about your experience as a toxicologist? Yeah, I mean, I'm only going to add this, that you know, we at our clinic for four or five years now have been doing extensive drug screens. Um, and I very, very rarely see heroin without fentanyl. I mean, I, I actually, I can remember maybe one or two cases and hundreds and hundreds of cases that did not have fentanyl or had only fentanyl and no heroin. And I use that kind of as a marker for the rest of our community. So I actually don't know because that's all, we've only been seeing high amounts of fentanyl for the last four or five years. And that's my entire experience. So. So let me, um, so thank you for that. And, and kind of the summary, summary I think is, is uh, precipitate withdrawal with buprenorphine on top of fentanyl seems as a short acting, you know, like not as much of a concern because it is really what we're seeing in our heroin anyways, especially in many parts of the country. Um, 
Eric, I know that you have to go and see patients at 11 for the rest of the group. Um, we're okay to go run a little bit over and to answer your direct questions. And we are gonna get to the EMS piece that Rachel's study is. So, so we are gonna have a little bit of a dive into EMS here in a second. But while we have Eric, and Eric as kind of a national leader and, and leader of this section, um, you know, there's a, a recent paper that, uh, that our friend uh, Kate Hawk put out uh, that surveyed academic centers and said only 21% of academic ER docs are ready to start giving buprenorphine to patients, meaning that 79% said we have no idea our elbows from our assholes, right? We don't know what we're doing. Um, so how do we change that? You know, you as a leader of the, the college in this, how do we make buprenorphine and treatment of opioid use disorder a more ubiquitous thing in our practice? Well, I'm going to give you my two cents, but then I'd love to hear, obviously, Andrew's take on this because, you know, Andrew's a great guy to, you know, um, to talk with and see you know, what's worked in the shop. Uh, but, but to say that also, if you look at what Andrew and Rachel have been doing, you know, this, this takes years often to change that culture. And sometimes, you know, one person can just turn this all around in your ED as long as you've got a few other people that are passionate about it. I did that in the hospital where I first started doing it, but it was easy because I also controlled the clinic. I could make sure people got followed the next day because that's often a big concern, what's gonna happen if they leave the ED. Um, and also as the medical director of the ED and I could write all the order sets. I didn't have to go through a lot of committee, you know, I didn't have to get resistance from other people. But, uh, but the problem is that clinic also, or that ED did great as long as it had the champion there, but you really have to, for sustainability, you've got to make this a system solution. That said, the resistance still comes from stigma resistance comes from misinformation and honestly you know the x waiver itself creates kind of a cover for that stigma uh, well i can't really do this i didn't get the x waiver etc um, but you know this isn't rocket science by any means and you know we've certainly as physicians have taken the time to learn about all kinds of other complex medications and complex disease patterns that there's no reason an emergency physician can't learn about this stuff pretty quickly it doesn't take an eight-hour class um, so culture change is the first thing, but one of the things that I found, if you're gonna get your docs engaged, even if they're interested, because there's just a whole lot of fear, right? Because this goes so much against what we've always taught about with opioids, you go slowly and you gradually, you know, then, you know, increase the doses needed. I think the biggest mistake we see up front, usually with emergency physicians, is not using enough buprenorphine. So it's usually underdosing the patient and that's why things aren't, aren't going well, that's why they're not succeeding and getting them over that, uh, that fear. Um, so you have to have the whole system built, you know, the pre-built order set, so they understand this is the way that's going. But what I found is the most important thing to get the buy-in and make people feel comfortable is what I call the phone-a-friend concept. For some reason, you can have people attend an eight-hour class on this, you've gone through multiple cases presented, and still the first patient's in front of them and they feel so uncomfortable with this concept. It happens all the time. And so getting that buy-in, gotta have the number they know they can call, whether that's somebody calling somebody like me or Rachel or Andrew, in their system. And once they've gone through a couple of these cases in the ED, it's amazing how suddenly everything has changed. They're completely comfortable with this. But, but the phone a friend, I think, is a big key to, to getting your program to be successful. Andrew and Rachel, as people have started programs, what have you noticed as barriers? And, and how do we get other emergency departments, uh, academic and, and community kind of on board uh, with, uh, with, with giving buprenorphine and treating opioid use disorder more aggressively? Um, so I think there's three things. I think the first is I, I'm really against the X waiver, but since it is there, use the X waiver as a way to change hearts over minds. So teach it yourself, 
right? So whoever your champion is, teach it um, and use that to, to address stigma. The medicine part of it is very, very easy. It's, the, it's literally overcoming um, all the misconceptions um, and the biases. Number two, you wanna make the good easy and the bad hard. So create pathways that are easy. The, what Eric said, the phone a friend, having it preset. We use Epic, have preset order sets um, and make linking to clinic really, really easy. And the third thing, these are all academic centers, right? Make it a resident task, right? So we, our residents can't graduate unless they have done their BUP training, period. That's one of our, that's one of our requirements. You, one, we're then sending these residents out and two, Honestly, in an academic center, who does the actual work and who makes the decisions, right? It's the residents. And they come to you and they're like, hey, I'm starting this patient on BUP. Like, you know, you kind of need to have your BUP waiver to be able to do that. So use the residents. I don't, I don't think it's an accident that, you know, Eric, Rachel, Ross Sullivan, um, that, that most of the folks who are really able to push novel protocols and approaches have access to a clinic that they either run or really are, are involved in. And I think a lot of that is safety. Um, if I can tell you that addiction providers are stigmatized just like people with addiction. And some of this fear is really quite f well-founded. Like there are very hostile environments out there where if you do things with buprenorphine that aren't completely by the book, you're gonna get a whole series of emails that why did you give 16 milligrams and not two? You know, why did you, did you check cures? Did you do this? Did you do that? Like all this stuff. So um, that, what I've seen, if there's a single thing that will kill your program, it's a, it's a hostile partner. Um, and it seems crazy, but there are a lot of, of office-based providers who just don't understand how damaging it is to send an e uh, email to their, to their provider hey, you know, you saw this person and did, did you know that they're also getting, you know, Norco from another doctor? Why'd you give them buprenorphine? That's this kind of nitpicky stuff. Um, so building that space of safety um, for the ER doc, I think is, is the number one thing. Um, because if they feel like they're going to get criticized or QA'd or all that stuff after, you know, treating people, it, it's just never going to grow. But if they feel like they can just be a good ER doc, explore the pharmacology, get to know their patients and do what's right in sort of in, in front of them, it's gonna grow and thrive. Eric, I know you've got to go and I'm gonna release you here in a second, um, but any parting thoughts from you and then we're gonna transition over to an EMS discussion. So any parting thoughts from you, Eric? No, yeah, just second everything that, uh, that Rachel and Andrew said, you have to make this the like path of least resistance. You gotta make this the easy thing. Um, and when it comes to the academic centers, you know, that's really speaks to the same thing as community EDs. The hardest people to train to get on board with this are actually your attendings. Residents are so interested in this. When I, um, when I teach at the University of New Mexico, because they have frequently had me come in and lecture on these subjects, um, you know, their questions are great. Even the medical students, the interns, I mean, they're engaged, they're learning about this. And, but it's the attendings who are the most skeptical, who are the most resistance, that you really have to feel like you're kind of like pulling them by the nose to get them to do the right thing. But um, if they're not engaged, you know, it, the, the resident just hits that roadblock, you know, all the time, you know, with, with the attending. So um, I, I completely agree, lead with them, but, but it's all about order sets, path of least resistance. And then when the follow-up care, 
you gotta, gotta go in, in your community and you just gotta get in your car. I mean, this is the truth. You gotta set up those conference calls. You gotta get in your car. You gotta go out and go to the yeah. clinic, shake yeah. their hands and sit down. And we have this misperception so yeah. often amongst our emergency physician colleagues that nobody wants these patients. Like that, that when somebody agrees to take one of these patients, like this is a huge inconvenience, but there are many of our partners in the community who actually, they're funded to take these patients. And yeah. if you just get in your car and you go and meet with them, and the first thing, you know, we always ask them is, how can we give you a portal access into our EMR? First of all, because we want to make sure that it's easy as possible for you to see all the labs this patient's already had done, their ED visit, boom, boom, make it simple for them. And then the same thing, you know, for us is, um, if we want to set up this appointment for the patient, just tell us what's the back office number, because our navigator is going to call that number, and we're going to let you know about this patient, or what day of the week are you doing open um, intakes? And if they say, hey, Tuesday's our open intake day, there's no wait, just have them come in here, they'll they be here all day, but nobody's an appointment. I mean, those are the critical things you need to be able to have like your navigator, your social worker, whoever's helping connecting people, give to your patients. But, um, you know, these clinics, they want their patients. They, many of them have a huge mission to do this. All we just gotta do is get people talking in the same room and you'd be surprised how well this can go. Yeah. Nice. Well hey, thank you, everybody. I do have to run. Great conversation, though. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Eric. You're the best. Eric. Okay. Okay, team. So, uh, so we're going to continue, and we've got a lot of questions about EMS. So, uh, so Rachel, uh, we have you on the phone, and you're actually taking buprenorphine to the streets. So, do you want to tell us about your study and kind of your experience uh, that was recently um, published? And I think someone very kindly, by the way, popped uh, Rachel's paper up into the chat for for those of you who are interested. Um, so I just want to say, I don't know that I would call it a study right now. It's really just a very short, brief uh, case series, uh, but we are getting ready to put it um, into um, a, larger, a larger study that we're working on. But um, so interestingly, um, I know Camden Police Department has been in the news quite a bit um, and is really does lead into it because one of the things that Camden Police did a couple years ago, which prompted all of this, is that they decriminalized heroin use. Um, in the field. So what that led to is a large number of patients receiving Narcan in the field and simply refusing to come in. Up to 40% were saying, you know what, thank you so much, or F you, or whatever, and, and they were just bolting. So what was happening is there was a large number of patients with opiate use disorder using heroin who never even had an interaction with the healthcare system except for EMS. Now the state took note of it and said, wow, you know, you guys need to reach these patients. How do you reach them? Hey, let's send a counselor into the field. Now, for those of us that have ever given Narcan and seen a patient revive, having them having a counselor at that point is kind of crazy, right? That's ridiculous that they're not going to do anything. So we decided to actually do something kind of a little bit edgy and said, you know what, forget the counselor what we're going to do. And we'd already realized that those 16 milligrams giving that high dose was now an option. Why don't we load these patients up right after they get reversed and then link them to treatment? And so that's what we did. And it was a, a little bit, you know, a little rough in the beginning. We had to train all the paramedics. They rotated through our clinic. Um, we had to create protocols and our state wouldn't allow uh, medics initially to carry um, to carry buprenorphine. So we had to have a state directive. We had to have the legislature, they had to, you know, create new laws for this, which we were able to do. Um, and then what we did is we start, we rolled it out initially with physicians only before the waiver passed. Um, and then we started doing it on, on one truck and now we're doing it on two out of five trucks. And the way it works is, and I'm happy to send people the algorithm if you want, although it is in this paper that we published. Basically, 
overdose, um, as long as you have a Kyle's of five, we're very generous, um, you then get loaded with 16 milligrams of sublingual bupe. And the other interesting thing is if you are gonna do this, I would highly advise you to use the films. What we found with the tablets is because the mucosa is so dry after an overdose, it simply wasn't dissolving and it was just getting very cakey and not working. So the films actually were really great and they dissolved very fast. So we're loading them with 16, they got um, four milligrams of Zofran as well. Um, and then we gave them another eight. Um, they didn't have to come into the ER, which is a huge deterrent. They, they don't wanna come into the ER. So we were just doing that in the field and they got a little card and they were seen the next day in our clinic or the FQHC. If it happened over the weekend, um, they would even either get a prescription from one of the ER docs or they could come into the ED to get dosed, whatever they wanted. Um, and then our EMS just was, you know, was incredibly active and they sometimes would say to the patient, listen, I will meet you outside the clinic for your appointment and I will walk you in. This is important to me. So that's kind of a little bit of an overview. Um, I know one of my colleagues presented um, at the EMS conference and I know he's also been giving some lectures on this. So um, yeah, let me know what your questions are. It's still a work in progress. We um, There's about 55 patients now that we were able to dose like this. We've had zero bad outcomes. Not one person had worsening precipitated withdrawal um, and our show up rate is about 53% right now. In clinic. That is amazing, really amazing. Um, so, so you know, one, uh, you know, I think that this is this is really exciting for a lot of us who are in high high overdose areas and who are having increased patients um, kind of refuse transfer. What was it like trying to get EMS? Because I think of the stigma amongst emergency physicians high. The stigma among, among first responders to me is even higher when it comes to treating patients with opioid use disorder. So what's that done? How did you get your EMS providers to buy in? And what's right. that done for your stigma? Right, so I'm gonna tell you. So there's a couple factors that played in, you know, that really helped us. One was that EMS was so burnt out. They actually came to us and they said, we don't know what to do. We are literally reviving the same people. We're showing up in these abandoned buildings. Our Ambu bags are still there. Discarded Narcan is on the floor. Like we need to do something. So they had realized that they had to do something. That being said, the first, I did all the first lectures in person. I would literally go to their, um, um, to their, um, I'm blanking on the word, but um, to their fire stations. I would, yeah, they're, it's not fire station because they're actually separate, but it's to their stations. And I would do these in person. And the first, the first time we did it, we had people get so angry that they yelled and walked out. Um, because they were like, I can't believe you would just give a drug addict a drug. That's crazy. And you're wrong. And this is, you know, you need to give them tough love. And, um, that being said, there were enough of them that, um, that wanted to come to clinic and they wanted to learn. And it really became those medics, those medics that were initially really kind of on the fence, they came and they learned and they, it was kind of like, you really had to teach the teacher because we taught them, we answered all their questions and then they went out and taught everybody else. ALS also then taught BLS, which was very helpful because a lot of times it's the BLS, even though they're not the one administering, they're the ones that have these interactions and they're the ones that are actually engaging patients. I'm going to just ask a question that, uh, that I had uh, from, from a provider the other day, which is what is the role in the emergency department of IV buprenorphine? Is there a role when it comes to withdrawal management or when it comes to pain management and get your, your, your thoughts on that? So have you worked, do you work with Ivy at all? We don't have it on formulary. We've been trying to get it on formulary. I'd love to have it on formulary. It's, it's cheap. It's effective. 
you know, I've, I, we got thrown off, but it was, we started our RCT of morphine versus IV buprenorphine for undifferentiated pain in, in the ED. And then we had that, remember all the morphine shortages that kind of threw everything off. So we only got half, halfway through it, like 30, 40 patients, but it was pretty obvious from a non, you know, scientific standpoint of just observing it. it it's not very different, you know, 0.3 of IV buprenorphine behaves really similarly to a 0.1 mg per kg of IV morphine for undifferentiated pain. Um, it comes in 0.3 ampules. Um, and it's just kind of a low dose, you know, so if you, if you go back, you know, like Don, a lot of those studies I sent you, early studies of buprenorphine, you know, they're using like eight milligrams IM or two milligrams IM. So the, the, the dose that just sort of comes in is rather low. Um, so we don't have a ton of experience I, you know, you can get, it's just, it's not really ready for prime time. You can reverse an overdose with IV buprenorphine. Like it's, it's possible, you know, I mean, we've, there's a study of um, where there uh, was women undergoing gynecological surgeries with fentanyl who, who left the OR uh, with respiratory rates of, of nine or less and they're randomized to either naloxone drip or, or IV buprenorphine drip. And they had the equal rates of return to satisfactory respiratory drive, but then the folks with buprenorphine just had less pain and discomfort. Um, I've done it. It's very painstaking. You know, you're just kind of titrating, so you don't want to go too far. You don't know. You need. To, it's it's not ready for prime time. It's it's a interesting pharmacological idea that makes sense, but it's not really practical. I would say because um, you need a bigger dose. And the sublingual works well. Was that your question, Don? Was it? Yeah, I mean, it's just a kind of a, you know, we don't have it on our formulary either. Uh, so, so I said, I really, I really can't tell you what the role is in my practice. I see Ruben has, uh, has kind of chimed in and, and Ruben has it, it looks like. And he says that, uh, that uh, he gives IV uh, no need for a line with profusely vomiting patients. Um, let me ask Rachel, just an interesting one that also occurred. And, and, and this, Andrew, you kind of cued my memory here was um, oftentimes if you have a patient who's overdosed, you know, and you talked about um, people who are kind of over, overdosed in the, o, in the OR, mm -hmm. but if you do have someone who comes in and they're kind of quasi-overdosed and you're thinking of giving naloxone, uh, are there times when you would give buprenorphine instead? Or Rachel, if you have that child who's, you know, or that adult who's accidentally taken a long-acting, be it Oxycontin or methadone, uh, is there any role for giving them buprenorphine instead of um, instead of naloxone? Uh, maybe you can save them from a buprenorphine from a naloxone drip and save them from an ICU admission with a, with a large dose of sublingual bup. What are your thoughts on that? So that's that's actually a great question. We've played around with that quite a bit, um, just simply going straight for the buprenorphine. And one of the difficulties that we've had is that very rarely do we have that patient who's like kind of a little overdosed, kind of, you know, in between, they're either not breathing and we have to do something now, or they're going to be fine. We put them on a little oxygen and just watch them. Um, the, my issue has been that there's not great data on the onset of action. So it's hard for me to push to even try this when I can give them Narcan and reverse them. You know, and they've thought about using this in the field. Hey, before you give the Narcan, why don't you slide the bup right under their tongue? But again, I, I don't, the onset of action, like if you're not breathing, my job is to help you breathe, right? And yes, I can bag you through it, but how long will I be bagging you? 
Um, and that's actually why we were thinking of the IV, IV buprenex, and maybe in the field we could give IV, you know, the IV or the IM, and maybe if they had a, if it had a shorter onset of action, we could be using it in lieu of Narcan. Um, I think all those are great questions, and I think we simply just don't know yet. Just yeah, I, I mean, honestly, so much of this is is really there's just so much scrutiny um, of practice around buprenorphine and addiction, and it's so new. You just got to be if if there was a if there was no if people were really open with like yeah I really want you to experiment and like try different things and figure this out it'd be a lot easier but that's just not the environment that most of us practice in um, so just be careful when you're on that fringe of stuff pharmacologically I think it makes a lot of sense I mean it works it's just if anything goes wrong it's like all of a sudden buprenorphine is like in the spotlight and you just don't want to sacrifice that victory for the majority of simple cases that you just want to get people comfortable with. There's a question about um, the X waiver uh, and if there's a movement to, uh, to uh, get rid of it. Uh, I'll go ahead and field that question um, just because ASAP's actually recently moved on this. Uh, as many people know, there's a lot of organizations that uh, want to do away with the X waiver uh, as a barrier. Uh, I know that probably everyone on this call, especially our, our specialist, agrees with that. Um, there's a Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act uh, that ASAP has just sent letters to uh, Congress about and, uh, and a letter of support to Pew Charitable Trust, who's the one who's, uh, who's um, I guess, leading that effort. Uh, so, so we are actively working on behalf of emergency physicians to try to eliminate the X waiver. With that, I'm going to go ahead and ask Rachel and Andrew uh, for parting thoughts. And Rachel, we'll have you, you go first. Um, I think that the one thing to remember is that we're all focused on COVID right now. Um, but the truth is that we still have an epidemic under the pandemic, right? Um, I can tell you guys that in New Jersey, our overdose rates are 20% up, um, which is terrible because we really thought we were making inroads. Uh, and so I think more than ever before, this is going to be an issue. Um, I know that a lot of people will say, well, is the ED the right place to deal with this? And it doesn't actually matter because they're there. So you're not going to stop them from coming. They're there. Um, and we need to be better. And we have options. Um, and so I think that every, you know, every department needs to do what they can to get on board um, and, and figure out a program that works for them and their population. Andrew? Yeah, I would echo that. Um, I would also just echo again that this really begins with caring for people who use drugs. Um, it's not about um, eradicating this sort of one piece of their life. Um, it's about caring for them as an individual. Hepatitis C, HIV, harm reduction, housing, all that kind of thing. And building a community of people, your ER, your participating folks, your EMS, who actually care about these folks um, and are authentic about it and believe it. And that if you've got that, that's the key. You know, all of this pharmacologic stuff is kind of just window dressing on a, a system that truly cares. And that really pushes us to really think about things. So we're talking about the X waiver. Rachel, who's been able to do things that no other center in the country has been able to do, she mentioned, right, it started with decriminalizing heroin in, in Camden, right? So I would really push us all to really, especially now, to think about what is the role of crime and police in, with drug use? 
you know, do we really want our patients who use heroin to be arrested and thrown in jail? Is that really just? Um, so that's where I think this all goes, um, is, is just a more holistic, an honest appraisal of stigma and discrimination of people who use drugs, um, starting there and then arriving at these various treatments like buprenorphine. So, so thank you for that, Andrew. And uh, for anyone who wants to dive more into the social aspects of that, there's a great book called Chasing the Scream, uh, which is uh, which should be almost required reading and poses a lot of really interesting questions about how we've got about the drug war and the role of, of community in connecting patients with opioid use disorder and, and helping them heal. Um, so as your as your moderator, first let me begin by thanking uh, our very esteemed guests. I, I've learned uh, a decent amount uh, during this call as well, and always do when I speak with Rachel and Andrew and Eric. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and summarize some of the high points here. The question that we posed uh, during this was, is it reasonable to give buprenorphine after naloxone, immediately after? And I think that resounding from our, from our panelists has been yes. It's, it makes sense. People have been doing it. We have good results. We protect patients uh, from one, the experience of withdrawal. We help their withdrawal. Two, because of buprenorphine and it lasting on the receptors, we prevent them from going out and overdosing again. And we know that there's a 5% overdose rate in a month, a death rate actually in a month and a 10% a year after patients present to the ED after overdose. Um, we talked a little bit about, uh, about the uh, buprenorphine as a very unique drug. Uh, the dose that you give kind of varies per patient, eight milligrams being uh, a good starting dose, but really, uh, as, as Andrew alluded to, you should really just take a good substance use history and start the patient where we're at, uh, where they're at. Uh, Rachel talked about some really exciting work that's going on with EMS and how if we empower our EMS agencies to treat opioid use disorder on the streets, we can not only uh, do better care for patients, but also start addressing burnout. And, uh, and that's a great question to pose. And hopefully we see a lot more research coming up about that. And then um, I'm going to end by just another thing was a lot of people talk about systemic barriers and uh, the role of administration. Andrew's mentioned the role of other providers outside of the ED uh, being, uh, being critical. Um, there's one thing that ASAP has, ju has, has just come out with. Uh, spearheaded by, uh, by our immediate past chair and section founder, Alexis LaPietra, which is our PACE program. And, uh, and PACE is an accreditation, which, uh, which your hospital can go about trying to, uh, to get. C-suiters love uh, merit badges and, and accreditations. So this is ASAP's um, attempt at, at helping make sure that, that you can kind of have a roadmap to your hospital providing great pain control and addiction care. And, uh, and that's a program that I'd refer you to. And then finally, uh, thank you for all that you do for your patients, especially during these challenging times. If you don't have a buprenorphine program, uh, please reach out to some of the specialists, to me, to Andrew, to Rachel. Uh, we love helping people set up buprenorphine programs and set up addiction treatment programs. And we are here as a section to help uh, advance that knowledge. And uh, thank you for taking the time. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.